Would you open your Bibles uh, to the book of Psalms 23? I, I was told once by an older pastor that when you're out of town, you should uh, book somebody to speak for you that isn't very good. So that way, when you get back, this is a true story, uh, when you get back, they'll be very grateful for you. <laughs> so I obviously didn't do that right because uh, David Chandel did an amazing job last week. I, I was watching, I was sitting in Antigua at a church. Uh, I didn't understand much what they were saying, so I had my earphones in, and I was watching as best I could with janky internet, and it was a real blessing, and obviously the impact of that was amazing. And, uh, and this, again, I'm, so I'm not doing a very good job of that rule, because then this coming Sunday, uh, Dr. Michael Easley will be filling in for me. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be a little busy this week, because my daughter's getting married on Friday. <laughs> Butterfly kisses, man, that's all I got to say. Um, it's going to be a, a wild week. Oh, and while you're turning to the Psalm 23, remember when I rode a bike a couple weeks ago for 62 miles? Okay, um, I want you to show you the picture of the village where the well, uh, this is where one of the wells is going to go. And, uh, and by the way, that's where it went. So that opened for business yesterday. Um, so we'll see that, Brian, when we go. Ashley and Ethan, we'll actually get to see that well when we go. Uh, we just drilled it, man, because we ain't screwing around. Like, we got, we got dr wells to drill. So that happened this week uh, while you were sleeping, actually. Um, Psalm 23, you got it? I'm just going to read this whole passage. And uh, if you've got your Bible, maybe follow along. And if you don't, man, just maybe close your eyes and let these words uh, minister peace to you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would be the lamp for our feet and the light that you promised it would be. And for every one of us in this room, those are words of promises that we just need to hear. That this is a passage that even though the word hope doesn't appear in it, it is dripping with hope. And I ask for me and for my family and for my church family today to just be covered with the hope that this passage promises us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Come. So they let you tote that record player down there, huh? He's in here. In here. That's the beauty of music. They can't get that from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? 
I played a mean harmonica as a younger man. Lost interest in it, though. Didn't make much sense in here. Here's where it makes the most sense. You need it so you don't forget. Forget? Forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's a... There's something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? Hope. Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. Better get used to that idea. Like Brooks did. Does anybody remember that movie? Yeah, right. I, I, I was just struck by that this week as I was reading Psalm 23 over and over again. Lauren is with me in Guatemala, and there's this volcano that has killed people, that the Christians and non-Christians side by side each other. And just thinking, man, what is, like, how do I come back and preach Psalm 23 after that? Because the thing about this passage is, I know you've probably heard it at a funeral. Maybe you yourself have read it at a funeral. But this is a psalm about living not about dying. So I'm coming back going, well, so what does that mean for, for hope? Because what, what he's offering here, uh, there's two views of hope, right? There's the view of, he says, oh, you gotta, there's a world on the outside that isn't made of stone, and that's what he's holding on to hope for. And by the way, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on a spoiler alert. Uh, this has not gone to the Supreme Court yet. I think it's got to be at least 10 years uh, Ryan Dunlap, you've worked in film. I don't, maybe you could help me with this, but I'm about to give you a spoiler, okay? So it's like 23 years, so it's not my fault if you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> he is saying that there's hope, and so his hope, Andy Dufresne, the protagonist, says, my hope is that in what you're, by the end of the movie, he finds himself on the beach of Mexico making a boat, and so his hope was that he could get out of this, this little prison made of stone because there isn't a place made of stone out there, and in the reality is, is that that's where the movie ends, but we all know that that's not how life goes. You move to Mexico. The Genesis 3 world exists in the prison or out of the prison. The danger was still there, just him getting out. So my point is, is that his hope was based on that something good could happen for him on this side of heaven. Now, on the other side, you've got Red, who says that, I don't want to hope at all. I said, hope is dangerous. And I didn't used to understand that. When I first uh, saw this movie, I was pretty young. But one of the things I was thinking about, so uh, you know, Lauren is 16, and that was my first time to go to Guatemala when I was 16 years old. My parents didn't go with me. They basically put me on a, in a car and wished me luck. That's Darren at 16. <laughs> Drink that in. Go ahead, take a moment. I got to play uh, the devil, so there's that in the play. But when I, at this age, you know, I'm, this movie, like, Hope is Dangerous doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand that. This is another one, by the way. I, I was really, it was kind of a kiss meets striper. Uh, 
meets El Diablo. <laughs> uh, Uh, what I was thinking a lot while I was there was I wonder if any of the kids that I met in 1988, where they are now? Were they in any of the villages that we were at? Maybe, I don't know. They would have been now in their 30s. And by now, the smiles of those children would have been met with the reality of a fallen world. Because we were meeting, we spent all this time with these little peanuts and they're so happy and they're so full of hope. And I'm understanding more and more when Jesus talks about the faith of a child, just what he means because you look in their parents' eyes and they know that life is hard in this fallen world. And so when I'm looking at this passage, I'm seeing David talk about hope. Even though he's not saying that word, that's what he's offering. And he's offering it as a grown-up. Like the, the commentators that I read said that this wasn't David like just kicking back in the field, looking at the stars and the sheep saying, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. In that way that a child would say, because it's so, the, the world hasn't hit him yet. This is not, David was writing this as an old man who had, had lost a son to death, who another son had betrayed him. He had murdered, okay, set him up to be murdered someone, took his wife. He'd lost his kingdom. Another son had betrayed him. He, that's the David, and he is saying there is a hope. Now, to me, the question is, is it the hope that, that uh, Andy Dufresne is talking about, which is really a very fragile hope because you can hope for something good to happen. And here's the, the thing. When you hope your whole life for something, two things can happen. You either get it or you don't. And when you don't and your hope is set on that, then you live your life always wondering, oh, I didn't get this. The other thing that could happen is you got everything you ever wanted for and you were still miserable. So if your hope is based on that. So my point, what hope is David talking about? The one that I can't face reality or the other one that says that I know what reality is and I'm not going to think about it at all? The Bible knows nothing of that kind of hope. The hope that David is talking about is durable. It will withstand a Genesis 3 world, will overcome a Genesis 3 world and will carry us into the Revelation 21 and 22 world. And what we're gonna do in our short time together is I wanna show you the way that I feel like this psalm flows when I read it. That the hope that David talked about is durable when we know who we hope in, when we know what we hope for, and we know where our hope comes from. That's the thing, you ready? Let's strap it, let's get it. Verse one of 23, who we hope in. Verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I got a problem immediately out of the gate because I want a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I, I moved into this neighborhood and I'm telling you, I've been alive a good 47 years now and I have never once thought, man, I really need a golf cart Until you see someone cruising by, I'm thinking, man, I got to walk, what, like 100 yards to the pool? Like, I need a golf cart. I want a golf cart. I never thought about that before. Someone once said that I could live a lot easier if my neighbors would. <laughs> the simple, you know, if my neighbors would, I could live a whole lot more simple. So what is David saying here? 
One of the things that's implied in this, by the way, is that if you, the Lord is your shepherd, I won't want, that if I want something, that there is another shepherd that might be leading me. Another implication of this is that if my hope is in what I want, then when I get it or I don't get it, my hope will still be based in that and not in him, which means it will be a fragile hope. That when you get what you want, so uh, this past weekend, actually just last night, I, was, uh, I got a text message from a friend uh, in Atlanta. When I was young, I had this, uh, I was, we were 23, we're just a little bit older than Maddie when she's getting married. And I had this plan that was, I hope something neat happens because I don't really have a backup plan. I'm about to marry my wife and I hope something neat happens. By the way, I need Ben to have a better plan than that. Okay. Um, yeah, just saying. But here's something, something neat happened. Like, I grew up in Christian music. I wanted to be in Christian music. I was, I would, like, I knew all the album liner notes. Does anybody else grow up this way? I knew all the names, and so I, that's what I wanted. And then something neat happened, and the band that, the text message I got, this band, well, one of the very first bands I ever got to work with was this band called Third Day. And they shut down their, uh, this was their last night, they did their reunion, or their farewell, what do they call it, the farewell tour? Um, they did the farewell tour. Last night was the last show, and I was just kind of taken back, thinking, "Man, I, I got kind of what I wanted. I, it's what I wanted, man. I wanted to be a guy." And at one point, I end up at this company called the William Morris Agency, which my mother thought made cigarettes. It's <laughs> like, yeah, mom, that's what we're doing over here. Someone answered the phone on my phone. They said, "Darren Tyler's office." I mean, I didn't even know that that was possible. At one point. I, I, I was getting my own coffee, and my boss said, I need you to let your assistant get your coffee because we, we pay you to make deals not to get coffee. Like, I'm living the dream. People stirring the cream. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is... <laughs> but I was not laying down beside green pastures. I was not beside still waters because my career was my shepherd. And the career... <laughs> Have you ever heard that? You know, you've spent your whole life climbing the ladder and then you figure out you got the ladder on the wrong wall. Or you get to the top of the ladder and you look over the top and realize there's more ladder. Like, that's what a career, if the career is your shepherd, will do for you. But if the Lord is your shepherd, you will not want. He makes you to lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside still water. Uh, many of you know this, but it's for those of you that don't. There was a period of my life where the Tylers had a little farm and we had a little flock of sheep. <laughs> Remember those? Aw. That uh, the white one is Mustang Sally. And Mustang Sally, you guys remember this? I wish I had a video. When she would bat, it sounded like she was like an old, uh, bleh, like she had changed, smoked her whole life. Like she was just like, bleh, like you're just waiting for something to come out. I'm not exaggerating, right? I learned a lot about sheep. The first thing I learned about sheep is that when Jesus referred to us as sheep, it wasn't necessarily a compliment. But what I learned was that when we bought the sheep, uh, were you with me, Ashley? We went that, that kind of that kind of nutty lady down south, and she was she, she was really mad because I was wearing flip flops. Like you city kids buying your sheep, ah. you wear those out, you're going to get hurt. And she was really mean. 
But the last thing she said as we were pulling out, because she was saying, now look, these are, she says this, this is an exact quote, sheep are a one-voice animal. So right now they don't know your voice. They know my voice. But after a while, they'll know your voice and they'll come to you when you call. Now she wasn't a Christian, or at least if she was, she didn't bear any of the seven fruits of the Spirit. Uh, <laughs> but... Sheep are a one-voice animal, and she said that, you know, the, the, whoever they spend the most time with is the voice that they will listen to, and that was true. But here's something else I learned that she didn't tell us, and that was that when sheep are separated from the herd, if a sheep is by him or herself, they go crazy. They are stressed out, and they are freaked out. And I remember a few times we hear, like, it sounds like a, a scared old man yelling in the, in the pasture, Bleh! and it was Sally separated from the herd, from the flock. And she would run. You remember, she'd just run back and forth looking. And, and we could all see them. They're just behind the, the shelter, but she couldn't see them. And she panicked. And what I'm saying is that what is implicit and explicit in this passage, explicit is the Lord is your shepherd, you will not want. Implicit is the only way that you're going to lay down beside still waters in a pasture is not alone. You were created for relationship with each other. In the garden for now, we are, and if the, he said sheep, David knew what he was talking about, that when he goes off to find the one for the 99 that Jesus spoke of, it wouldn't have been hard to find them because they would have been panicked and afraid and alone. And oftentimes, when you're struggling with the depression and with the sadness and a sorrow, you want to isolate yourself, and all it does is exacerbate the situation because we were made to be together with a shepherd that loves us, that's good, and with brothers and sisters in the same flock. You see, sheep don't herd with goats. They know better. A goat, by the way, you can put out with a bunch of cows and whatever, and a goat's fine. Goats are awesome, by the way. We had fainting goats. We named them, um, if I should say this, we named them after televangelists. We, um, I swear... We had Benny Hinn. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it was, I don't know. I mean, I'm sorry, God. Lord, I apologize. Um, I mean, just in case. But a goat could kind of herd with whoever, but a sheep don't. A sheep needs other sheep. This wasn't an accidental reference that David was making. For me to lay down beside still waters requires me to be with my people, with my flock. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There is a word that is used there that Christy McClellan has spoken of. That word is shub. The restores, shub. And in the Old Testament, it speaks of a repentance, of a turning around and going back. It's used over and over again in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's used as a, I'm going back, like when the waters receded of the, the Genesis flood, they shubed. They receded. They went back. He restores my soul. Also, the word shub, a lot of times the prophets used it as a word for repentance, of turning around and coming back home. He shubs your soul. He restores. He turns you around. He is the shepherd that has gone to look for you and to bring you back to the flock that you might not want. He says that he restores my soul and we hope in anything but Jesus. It's not durable. 
it goes up and it goes down, but Jesus is always there. And he goes on to say that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we hope in Christ, but what we hope for says, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. This is, I'm, I'm trying to get my reformed credibility street points, if you'll allow me. I want to read a quote from Spurgeon. I'm trying to figure out whether I'm Baptist. They ask you, do you believe that God chose you or that you chose him? I say yes. So I don't, whatever you do with that. David didn't, this is a Spurgeon, he's talking about David writing this psalm towards the end of his life. Did not expect to pass through life without experiencing difficulties. He had to fight Goliath. He had to go into the cave of Adullam. He expected to have troubles and he certainly was not disappointed. Nor will you be. Do not reckon that God will give you a life without difficulty. Tell me, if you can, of any child of his who ever had such a portion. He had one son without sin, but no son without sorrow. The problem of the false hope of that I'm going to be okay no matter what is it's not true. That... When I was, uh, this last week, uh, Lauren and I heard a, a guy, a pastor, tell this amazing story. And I'm like sitting on the edge of my seat, even though I'm standing. And he says, he's talking about this, uh, the volcano and the eruption and how the lava was coming for this house. And he says that he drew a line in the sand, this arrow, and he says the lava went around the house. And that there, were, there was a pastor's home, and in that home were, turned out to be 27 other people. And they got in there and they rescued him, and right after they rescued him, the lava came and took the house away, and he was so excited. I'm like, that is such a great story. And he says, and you know why? Because in the way that God works in this world, people think that we're all on a level playing field, but we're not. Some are greater than others, and so God will protect others more than he will others. Right? Like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> like whoa, whoa, buddy. <laughs> it's like, I thought we were having a great story here. Because the pro the, here's the problem with that story. There, I know very specifically of another pastor whose entire family was killed in that volcano. Was he not as good of a man? Was Paul? I say that to say, we live in the valley of the shadow of death. We live on planet Earth. Andy Dufresne was wrong because there is no place you can go that's not made of stone. Our planet is made of stone. And so the valley of the shadow of death, you see in verses one through three, he's talking about how we can live and lay down in green pastures if we know that the Lord is our shepherd. And even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's talking about death. The great poet Jim Morrison was right. None of us are getting out of here alive. And some of us are going sooner than others. But it's not a failure to die. That's just life. And a million years into eternity, this little, this little second of life. I believe, by the way, I, to answer the question that some of you are asking, so why did one pastor live and why didn't the other one? I don't know. It beats me. One day we will. 
One day we'll be around his throne saying, righteous and true are your judgments. And all I know that that means is whatever it was, we're going to be like, if God can high five, that's the moment. That's awesome. I don't know how you did it or pulled it off, but that was amazing. And until that moment, we hold on in faith, knowing that his rod and his staff comfort us. The rod and the staff, here's the thing. We are going through as sheep. Our sheep lived with fences, right? Like they were just, so they, they couldn't go anywhere. But these sheep, they lived out in the open, and they needed a shepherd who was armed. And the rod was his weapon. And his rod comforted them because he knew that this shepherd, that whatever got through was anything that God wouldn't have let through. Whatever gets through was something that the shepherd would have let through. And if it didn't get through, it was because the shepherd didn't let it through. The rod would comfort them. And his staff, which is the little hook you see where they pull somebody off the stage at a Broadway show or whatever, it's the, those are for sheep, and it would pull them back to where they're supposed to go. It had a little crook on the end. And the point is, is that discipline is security. That when I'm in a place where I'm being disciplined, if I'm standing next to another soldier, the way that I get the, that soldier's following orders and following the discipline, Ashley's going into the Navy, and she's going to be given a lot of orders, orders that might not even make any sense, but it's on her fellow soldiers will depend on her to follow those orders for their own lives. So discipline, when the Lord moves us back in again, it's actually for our good, for his glory, but for our good. His little crook is moving us back in. Now, here's the thing, though. He says, and I will fear no evil. I can't skip over that without saying this, that fear, listen to me, and don't walk out. Let me finish, and then you can walk out. Um, Fear isn't actually a sin. And I say that, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Fear no evil, I will fear not evil. Fear in and of itself is something that God gave us to keep us safe. You, you watch the YouTube, these kids that are walking along big giant uh, skyscrapers and walking on the edge. And, okay, that's not fearless, that's stupid. <laughs> They're not letting their fear lead them where they need to go. That I want my child, Ethan, just FYI, that's dumb. Don't, so if you think that's, not, that's conquering fear, that's not at all. God put that inside of you to keep you from doing dumb stuff, to protect you, to prepare you. And ultimately what fear does for us is it makes me want to cry out for help. Fear puts me back into a place where I cry out for God. I used to think that when I was afraid that I would use everything I knew about God to get away with my fear, to get it away from me. Instead of using the fear that's inside of me to tell me more about God, to draw me to God, to tell me the truth about myself. And when I stuff it down, and I keep stuffing it down, and me saying fears, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid. I'm not acknowledging, I'm not afraid, I'm going to act like I'm not afraid. Let me tell you what that leads you to, a one-way trip to anxiety and panic attacks. Because all you've done is stuff it down, and before long, your body is going to have a physiological reaction and anxiety is just your body telling you you're having a feeling. So when it says I will fear no evil, what does that mean then? Does it mean I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid? What it means is I'm taking my fear to the safest place on the planet, which is God, and allowing him to comfort me, allowing fear to take me to him and allowing him to calm the fear that I'm feeling. Because what ultimately I hope for. The question of all questions, what is it that I hope for? Is that I'm going to be okay. 
that it's going to be okay. You can boil almost everything down to that. Man, is it going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? I didn't get this. The job didn't come through. The, the relationship fell apart. I, am I going to be okay? And his rod and his staff comfort us because it's leading us in this flock to a place that goes right through the valley of the shadow of death, which is a real place in Israel. Phyllis, you know this. You could, if you want to know about it, Phyllis can fill you in on it. But it's a real place and it's a real thing. And I believe that what this passage is telling us is in the first couple of verses, this is how we live on this planet in the middle of trouble, in the middle of a fallen world, and it takes us to even death, like even that, that scariest thing that we want to avoid at all costs, that even in that, that he can comfort us, because our hope doesn't come from here. Psalm 121, he says that, where does my hope come from? I look to the mountains and the God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. In other words, I'm looking to the mountains, not for my hope, but I'm looking to a mountain and saying the God that created that mountain is my hope. He says, you prepare, verse five, a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death is a table that is prepared for you. I always thought my whole life that that meant almost like a dinner table. The war is going, like, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, and they've got a dinner there, like a picnic going on in the middle of the war. But when you look at the context of what he's saying here, he's switching metaphors from a shepherd, which David was, to a conquering king, which David also was. David, the conquering king, the warrior king, would come back from battle like any warrior king, and behind him would be his troops. Behind him would be the bounty of war that he would distribute to his people. And behind them would be the prisoners of war, the captives, the enemy behind him. And at the celebration, they would throw a feast in the presence of their enemies. This is what he's speaking of anointing your head with oil, the triumph over the valley of the shadow of death. You see, the picture, you've heard this before, that you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I think that is bogus. I think that you could be so earthly minded you're no heavenly good. There is, you can't be earthly good if you're not heavenly minded. Because if I'm earthly minded, and this is all there is, if this is it, that sucks. Sorry, kids. Don't say that. If this is, this is what Paul said. If this is it, if there's no resurrection, I'm to be pitied above all else because there's nothing beyond here. But if there is, if Jesus really resurrected from the dead, if, as it says in Colossians, that he disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, then we can, on this side of earth, whether we got the job or we didn't, whether we survived the volcano or we didn't, whether you relationship survived or it didn't, we can still lay beside green pastures because the Lord is our shepherd.
And where is he leading us? He's leading us even through the worst place on earth, the valley of the shadow of death. But we are not on a journey that camps out and stays there because on the other side is a meal for you. The Lord's, it talks about it in Revelation, the dinner that he's going to provide. That's why we do communion every week. It's a dress rehearsal for what is to come. That in the presence of your enemies, and by the way, your enemy isn't your coworker. It isn't your spouse. It's Satan. And in what war do we shoot the hostages? We only shoot the enemy. And our enemy is not the other people around you, even those that are being mean to you. But the real enemy will be taken captive that day. And on that day, there will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. And so what do we do in the meantime? Do we not hope at all? No, we can hope. And even if we don't get it, we can take our sadness to God, can take my anger I can take it to others who are safe around me because it didn't work and I don't, but it's not a hopelessness that is a forever. It's just a moment because then that hopelessness will drive me to the Father. The hope will drive me to him because I'm looking to the pastures. I want to say one more thing and then I want to be done because I understand it's 1220 and it's kind of hot in here. When we were uh, talking to that pastor in, Guatemala. At first I was kind of angry and I talked to Lauren about it. And Here's what I was reminded of. Jesus says in John 10 verse 1, he started talking about to the Pharisees, by the way, I am the good shepherd. That's what he says. And it made them angry, by the way, because they knew exactly what he meant. But he says to them that a thief and a robber tries to get in by another gate. Only the good shepherd, that's the only gate in and I'm the gate. Listen, verse one or two, a thief or a robber, that's the only way, they're the ones getting in. And he goes down somewhere around verse 10 or 11, Tom, tell me if I'm wrong, when he says, listen, the thief comes not but to kill, to steal, and destroy. Who was the thief in that metaphor? The Pharisees. The religion. Now, it's Satan, don't get me wrong, the satanic, but that satanic was played out in religion. He was talking to the Pharisees saying, you're going to get into the kingdom of God another way besides my work on the cross through religion. So what was so dangerous about what that pastor thought and was feeling was that those people were killed because they weren't good enough. They weren't spiritual enough. And if they had just been a little more spiritual, God would have spared them. That is religion and it is damnable and it has come to do nothing but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And if you are walking in a relationship with God right now where you think that my hope can only be met if I'm good enough, if I can be just a little bit better, if I can cuss just a little bit less, if I can be just a little nicer, then I'll be better. He restores. He, he, listen, he restores your soul, not you. And the implications of that are just as amazing as you think they are and just as freeing as you think they are. And from that It gives you the power to overcome sin. And when you blow it, you have a good shepherd that he's got a crook and he's taking it behind you and he's gonna push you in. And how does he discipline you? He says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me for the rest of my life. We have these two dogs named Bear and Sage, okay? We got them to be farm dogs to protect our livestock, okay? And just like a Disney movie, we bought a house in a neighborhood and now they gotta come and learn how to be a neighborhood dog. And it's gone poorly. 
But we got them because they're, they're good dogs for protecting chickens. The chicken guy sold them to us. And they're hilarious and they're sweet. And we called one bear, I call her Bear Yonce. Um, she, anyway, it's a long story. Um, but I'm telling you, about eight or nine o'clock at night, Sage especially, is at the back door, standing guard, waiting for the possums, waiting for the raccoons, waiting, because she's there to protect us. And my kids, I swear, this is really true, they've been slipping her Benadryl at night, because she gets so keyed up that she won't go to sleep. She's not, I gotta go, I gotta, I gotta protect us. And I'll say, Bear, where's or Sage, where's the possum, where's the possum? And she'll run a patrol of the entire parameter of our... And just a couple nights ago, Shannon and I let her, about a couple weeks ago, let her out, and she dove under the furniture on the patio. We're like, uh-oh. She comes back out, scooting her little butt out. She has a possum hanging from her mouth. <laughs> Surely, goodness and mercy. The sheepdogs, listen to me, that follow behind, that push the sheep forward, that nudge you, that keep you in, are goodness and mercy. And they are there to protect you. They're there to comfort you. They're there to lead us where we're supposed to go. How does God lead you? It is his kindness that leads you to repentance. Surely goodness and mercy, not surely harshness and judgment, but goodness and mercy. When Moses begged, God, would you let me see you? He said, I can't, you'll die, but I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you. Would you stand to your feet and let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for being humble enough to be referred to as a shepherd <laughs> and for letting us be referred to as sheep. It's not an accident. And Lord, for those of us that maybe aren't feeling hope today, maybe it's because we put our hope in something that wasn't you, that's fragile. And I pray for each of us, Lord, to be able to redirect that hope. Recognize it's sad, but you gave us sadness as a gift to deal with it. That it's scary, but you gave us that fear that we can then come back to you. And just like a prodigal, that eventually we're going to come to the end of ourselves, whether we're David, whether we're Solomon, whether we're Darren. We're coming back to you and remembering that the goodness and mercy will follow us and where they're going to lead us is to dwell in your house forever and ever. Amen. Guys, be blessed. Have a great week. Good Father's Day. Praying for you guys that lost your daddies or maybe have a complicated relationship. Go and celebrate your heavenly father with that. Be blessed. <laughs>